Morning, everyone. My name's Silas, um, associate pastor here. It's good to see everyone. Um, if you would, join me for a quick word of prayer uh, as we begin. Holy God, we are grateful for this time together uh, to worship, to engage, to be formed by you in community. Uh, and I pray that these spoken words would be faithful to your written word and lead us to the living word, Lord. Jesus Christ, by the power of the Spirit, may we discern your will, God. Amen. So when I was in grade seven, I was really into sports. And now I stay active pretty much just playing soccer. But before, I wanted to play everything, you know, all the sports, all about them. It was good. And so I'm 12, and I try out for middle school volleyball, and the unthinkable happens. I get cut. (laughs) Unthinkable. And so the world has ended, and I've peaked. You know, my life is over. From this moment, I'm convinced there's nothing left, and so the world is over. My world is crushed. And this is what it felt like for young Silas. You know, it was a big deal. And so I get home from school. I'm sulking around the house, and eventually, uh, the evening comes. My dad comes home from work, and he tells me to sit down. So I sit down. I'm disgruntled. I'm disappointed, but sure, sit down. And then... He tells me to write down the following letters. So if you're a note taker, you can follow along here. He tells me to write down the following string of letters. Ready? O-P-P-O-R-T-U-N-I-T-Y-N-O-W-H-E-R-E. So he has me write down this whole string of letters, right? And then he says, what does this say? So I look at the page. I see two words. Opportunity nowhere. And I'm never going to play sports again. My life is over. And then my dad, he's like, you'd have to know him. He's really Yoda-esque. He's just quiet and really like reserved. And he has this way about him. And so he just says, maybe. But when I see these letters, I see three words. Opportunity, now, here. Then he gets up and leaves the room. and just drops that bomb. (laughs) Sagely wisdom. So I'm thinking about this then, right? I'm ruminating over this. 12 years old, I'm thinking about this. My mind is blown. And from there, I trained hard, You know, I made the team the next year. I played volleyball in college too, so it was a good time. Life was fine. Life was okay. Life did not end on that fateful day in grade seven. So from opportunity nowhere to opportunity now here. Now, I haven't thought about this story uh, in a long time. It'd been a while. And in some ways, it sounds really cheesy, you know, it's almost hallmarky, but as I reflected on this text this morning, full disclosure, I was thinking, bruh, okay, look, we're at the end of Romans, we've been going through it, weeks, we've hit the theology, you know, I feel like we've gleaned pretty much everything there is to glean out of this text. 
Paul's just talking shop. He's talking about logistics, his next travel, his next place where he's going to visit. He's talking about travel plans. Like, what else is there left to say? It has been a long time in Romans. And maybe pastors aren't supposed to say that, you know, but here we are. So, real talk, it was a struggle this week. Lots of starting, restarting, restarting again. But eventually, after much contemplation, I reread the verses that Brian read for us this morning, and the idea of priestly duty just really jumped off the page, right? Priestly duty. So take a look at verse 15 again. Yet I have written you quite boldly on some points to remind you of them again because of the grace God gave me to be a minister of Jesus Christ to the Gentiles. He gave me the priestly duty of proclaiming the gospel of God so that the Gentiles might become an offering acceptable to God, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Therefore, I glory in Christ Jesus in my service to God. So, in Christianity, it is common for us to say that Jesus is our high priest. Right? Not to jump the gun, but the central theme, one of the central themes of Easter is this exact point. Right? We'll key in on this on Easter. Jesus is our high priest. And specifically, in talking about Jesus as our eternal high priest, we will focus on the notion of mediation. Right? So Jesus is the eternal mediator, just like how the priests in ancient Israel were understood to be mediators between Israel and God. Right? That's why the priests were there. So Christ, by virtue of his self-sacrifice, Christ models what priestly duty looks like for us. And so what is the basis for priestly duty? Look at Christ. Christ surrendered his life for the sake of all so that we might participate with him in God's redemption of the world. And this is exactly what Paul describes in 2 Corinthians 5.14. So he writes, For Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all, therefore all died. And he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. So now, from now, or, so from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone, and the new is here. Jumping down to verse 20, we are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Christ is our high priest. And in light of this, it follows that when we talk about priestly duty, when we talk about priestly duty, it's understood to be participation in Christ's act of mediation. It's participation in his priestliness. 
Is everyone tracking? Okay. Priestly duty is participation in Christ's life of mediation. So Christ's life of sacrifice, Christ's life of reconciliation between God and creation. For most Christians, this isn't new or doesn't seem exceptionally scandalous. But to live like Christ, do things like, or do good things to others, be priestly to others, that's what we're talking about when we say Christ is our high priest, when we live in a priestly duty. But if you're following your outline, point two, how does priestly duty function then, right? If we know that it is acting like Christ, mediating like Christ, how does priestly duty function? This is a crucial, crucial question that Romans 15, it throws on us this morning, right? It tells us priestly duty, but then how? It's important for us to recognize that when we read our passage today, the image we have in our minds of a priest, who a priest was, what a priest did, might be incomplete. And so, for instance, in the world behind the text, this is in ancient Israel in this time period, in this time for Israel's history, the image of a priest had very distinct roles and duties attached to it. So we think of the word priest, and immediately in our context, we think of like a pastor or a minister, a preacher. But think about this. While one of the main responsibilities for a preacher or for a priest in uh, Israel was to preach and teach, preside over worship, another one of their responsibilities was to ensure that the place of worship was clean. Like they didn't just preach, they acted as cleaners as well. Or another responsibility was to sacrifice animals. And we always focus on that. We see that role as a central part of their duty. But priests also raised animals. Like they were farming people as well. They raised animals specific for sacrifice. So not every animal that went into the temple was raised by a priest. But priests did raise animals for the purpose of being sacrificed in the temple. So this is how people traveling from far away, they might come and purchase sacrifices in the temple if they couldn't bring it with them when they're making their pilgrimage. And then we see later on Jesus comes in and he sees the economic system. He confronts it and then flips over the tables, cleanses the temple. He's taking that system and getting rid of that, cleansing that. That's just a side note. The priests did multiple things. Not just the preaching or the teaching or the ministry side of it. So when they're doing these things, they're also doing mundane things. Communal things, but also mundane things. The tasks or duties of priests, they were pretty varied. And so have you ever thought about this before? Priestly duty at this time functions and functions now in a wide breadth of ways. Priestly duty is more than just ministry, per se. So priestly duty, defined earlier as participation in Christ's life of mediation, in Christ's life of sacrifice, Christ's life of reconciliation between God and creation, extends further than the walls of the temple in Paul's time. It extends further than the walls of the church in our time. 
It's interesting to note that in Romans 15, verse 16, the word that we see for priestly duty in verse 16 in the NIV, it only appears here in Scripture, the only time, right here. It's translated a couple different ways depending on the language or translation you're reading. So it might say priestly duty. It might say holy service, godly service, godly work. And all these are nuanced renderings of a Greek word that has two roots. And the roots are holy and work. Holy work. Again, priestly duty in our context is not exclusively the work of pastors, ministers, or clergy. Like, priestly duty is a work for all Christians, all people who claim Christ. And it's for all people to participate in the work of Christ and in his work of redemption. So, who is priestly duty for, though? We know what it is. Again, it is responsibility of all Christians to participate with God in the work of of redemption. We know how it functions. Our duty as priests, uh, it expresses itself in sacred tasks, in lay tasks, in sacrificing animals, in raising the animals, in the whole spread and everything in between. That's how it functions. But who is it for? Who is priestly duty for? To answer this, consider the story of the Good Samaritan. We remember the story, right? Luke 10, 25, we read that there's an expert of the law who wants to test Jesus. So he asks, teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What do I have to do? And then Jesus responds to this with a question of his own. And he says, well, you're a teacher of the law. What's written in the law? How do you read it? And the teacher answered, well, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Then Jesus responds, yes, you've answered correctly. Do this and you will live. Now catch this, verse 29. But he, this is the teacher, he wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? And in reply, Jesus said, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. And when he was attacked, he was attacked by robbers. So they stripped him of his clothes, they beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. And a priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed on the other side. So too, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was. And when he saw him, he took pity on him. So the next day he took out out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper and said, "Look look after him. He said, when I return, I will reimburse you any extra expense you may have. And so now Jesus, after the story, after taking him and taking care of the man, he asks the lawyer, he says, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? And the expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. 
Then Jesus says, go and do likewise. When we read this text, when we read any parable, it's easy for us as modern readers to treat these things like, uh, like children's stories or like, like fables, right? So we boil them down into a tightly packaged moral, and that's as deep as it goes for us. So tortoise and the hare, right? We know that one. What's the, what's the moral? Slow and steady wins the race, right? Yeah, it's good. Does anyone know this one? This was a French one. I grew up, I grew up in Canada. Um, and this was one of my favorite ones in French class. It's called The Fox and the Crow. Anyone? There's a, there's a crow who has a piece of cheese in his mouth, and he's on a stick up here, and he's a good singer. And then the fox keeps complimenting him. And then he finally sings. He drops the cheese. The fox takes the cheese and goes away. And the, the moral there is never trust a flatterer. It's a good one. <laughs> It's one of my favorites. The Good Samaritan, we boil down to this. Love your neighbor as you love yourself. Right? Do good things to people in need. Don't walk past them on the side of the street. Do good things. This isn't wrong to say. Of course, we want to help those in need. This is totally cool, totally fine. But if this is as far as the story goes for us, we miss the rest of what Luke 10 is trying to form in us, what it's trying to do in us. So yes, we want to be like the Good Samaritan. Of course, we want to love our neighbors as, as, or love our neighbors as ourselves. We want to do good things to others, be like the Good Samaritan. The thing is, no one is going to disagree with that. No one's going to be like, you shouldn't do good things. In fact, in the context of this parable, the lawyer actually says, who's trying to test Jesus, he actually says that he believes this too. Right? He believes that if you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and all your strength, all your mind, and you love your neighbor as yourself, you will inherit eternal life. He already knows this. So everyone in the story here is already in agreement that in order to inherit eternal life, love God, love neighbor, you're good. Now remember, Jesus is talking to a Jewish teacher of the law about a Jew who is beaten up and then disregarded by the people in his world who are supposed to care for him. Right, so the priest goes down from Jerusalem to Jericho. When it says he's going down, typically what this means is he's finished like a two-week stint at the temple, and now he's taking this 17-mile trek back to, uh, to Jericho, right, where a lot of priests would live. He's like making his commute down after spending his two-week shift out there. So he's doing this, and it's very probable that this is what Jesus is sketching here. Right, it's shift change. And the priest, he has a responsibility to care for everyone, to care for people in need. But if the man is wounded, if the wounded man, sorry, is actually dead, if he's actually, you know, if he's actually passed, then the priest wouldn't be able to go to his home. He'd have to go back up the mountain, back up here, and spend a week doing the purifying ceremony, right? 
He wouldn't be able to go back here. That means he's up here another week. And that's cutting into his time off. And also, if the man is Egyptian or Greek, Syrian, he's from Samaria, if he's any one of those uh, ethnicities, he's from any of those nations, well then, the priest would have just ruined his whole time off, and he actually doesn't have to care for this person under the law. Like, the law doesn't say he has to do that. And so, there's an ignorance that happens here for sake of ceremonial purity, right? It's too important to him to risk. So he intentionally ignores the man, goes on his way. And next, the Levite, who is most likely an assistant of the priests, right? Not all priests were Levites, or sorry, not all Levites were priests, but all priests were Levites. This Levite is most likely an assistant to the priest. And so what that means then is he's not taking a, an animal down the, down, down the mountain. He's not that wealthy. He's not wealthy like the priests. So instead, he's probably walking. And most would argue that he's walking after in tow of his boss. And so when he sees that his boss has bypassed this person already, he's not going to question it. You know, don't ask, don't tell. Just going to keep going. Just going to keep following. And so the precedent has already been set for him. And so for him, he doesn't question the authority of the system that is above him. But then a Samaritan is moved with compassion, and he takes care of him. He binds up the wounds, pouring oil and wine. The idea of pouring oil and wine, those were common tasks of the Levite. And then he transports the man. He's doing what the priest wasn't able to do or refused to do. But then we always miss this, or we, we oftentimes miss this. The Samaritan risks his own safety as well as he rides into enemy land with a wounded enemy on his animal. Like this is perhaps the biggest risk that the Samaritan takes, the biggest sacrifice this man makes. Personally taking and paying for this man's care in a Jewish town. It's not like he just goes to the hotel. He goes into a Jewish town to take care of him. So imagine, imagine that a person from Iraq personally is escorting a half-dead soldier to a medic tent inside of a military encampment. That is really what is happening here. Like that is the, the weight, the gravity of what is happening. And regardless of what actually happened to this soldier, he probably went actually, like, we don't know what happens next in the story, but um, imagine that that's what's happening. Like there is, there's so much weight to that story when you think about it in that way. Like, they might not have even given him time to really tell his story. Like, there's no explaining to do. It's clear. You see a half-dead person on the horse of an enemy or the donkey of an enemy riding into the town where this person's from. That is a lot of weight right there. So notice that Jesus reframes this man's original question. The question is no longer... Who is my neighbor? If you're Jesus, the answer is anyone in need. 
irrespective of how you imagine your purity codes or irrespective of how you have seen more mature Christians act in the past, Jesus here is talking about expanding the scope of your neighborliness. Expanding the scope of your neighborliness. So, again, this whole story, once we recognize this, we'll come to realize that the parable isn't really about what we do to our neighbors. Everyone knows you're supposed to treat your neighbors well. Right? He knows it. We all know this. We all know the moral of this story. Do good things. Treat your neighbor well. Instead, this story is more so concerned about expanding who we say our neighbors are. So who we think is worthy of receiving our attention. Now, the question is not, who is my neighbor? Instead, in this exchange, the text is actually asking us to consider, to whom am I called to be a neighbor? Right? Not who is my neighbor. Who am I called to be a neighbor for or with? And so to our question at hand, like priestly duty, who is priestly duty for? Well, it's for everyone. It's for Christians to recognize that our responsibility, our ability to respond to God's grace, our responsibility uh, to be priests in the world who join with Christ in the work that he's doing through actions, you know, through the way that we live. It's all of that recognizing that we have a responsibility in that way. It's also for those who have yet uh, to know the fullness of God's love for them, right? So, who is this for? Who is priestly duty for? It's for us, but it's also for others. I think St. Isaac the Syrian, he hits the nail right on the head when he says this when it pertains to action and uh, priestly duty. Conquer men... By your gentle kindness, and make zealous men wonder at your goodness. Put the lover of justice to shame by your compassion. This is it. This is what priestly duty is. This is how priestly duty functions. This is who priestly duty is for. This morning, at about 4 a.m., you know, I felt God press, press me to give a very specific call, uh, call of response this morning in prayer. I'm not sure exactly, like, it's not, this isn't a smooth transition at all, but some of us in the room, right, have been Christians for a long time. Some of us have been Christians for a very long time. And you've had highs and lows in the past, You know, more recently, though, things have just kind of felt stagnant as of late. You're here, you're committed to God, you come to church, but things are just feeling, eh, you know, meh. You're feeling kind of ambivalent about this, church, faith, everything. Maybe life's been really, really busy, it got busy, okay, 
Maybe you had some transitions in life with family, career, school. Maybe you moved, you know, there was something happened with health, relationship. You're just feeling like your bandwidth is maxed out. Friend, peace to you if you are there. And I can't imagine specifically how frustrating this has been for you. How unsatisfying faith has felt when you're grinding in this way, right? But if you're there this morning, I want to pray for you and with you that God would reignite a sense of priestly duty in your life. Now, please don't mishear me. This isn't about trying to manipulate you or manipulate anyone to get plugged into the church, right? To get plugged into serving the church. Not about that. I want to reiterate that Jesus, the eternal high priest, our elder brother, was a priest who lived with full recognition that the world was his parish. So our priestly duty of participating in the work of Christ with all, for the sake of all, it can feel like sometimes it's too big of a cross to bear. And yet, you're still here. And Christ is here for you. So there's nothing to be ashamed of. There's nothing to fear. If you have been feeling down, you know, if you've been feeling like there's an opportunity nowhere, now we know priestly duty, uh, it matters, but what opportunities is God asking and putting in front of us to look and see? Like, what opportunities are now here? If this is you this morning, in a minute we will pray. But as we do this, would you set yourself in a posture of reception? Again, you don't have to do it. I know this can feel exposing. exposing. It can feel vulnerable. It takes vulnerability. But set yourself in a posture when I pray of reception. Open your palms. Close your eyes. I expect to receive from God. Let me echo the words of Paul here in verse 14. I myself am convinced, my brothers and sisters, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with knowledge, and competent to instruct one another. I absolutely, categorically believe this about us, about you. Again, haven't been here for a super long time, but I am convinced of this, absolutely. Like, there are so many good things in this room. People filled with knowledge, competent to ex- instruct one another, full of goodness. Friends, we are here. We have so many capable people here in this body. So much knowledge, so much compassion, so much ability to speak into each other's lives. If any of this has resonated this morning and you want to receive a touch from the Lord, would you posture yourself in faith to receive from God? This isn't magic. This isn't some kind of formula you do. 
right? It's not a formula for a better life, but it is a framing of ourselves to say to God, hey, if you speak, I'm trying my best to receive your word. I want to reignite the idea of priestly duty in my life. I want to discover who you have created me to be, and I want to join in your work for the sake of others and for the sake of the world. Obey the Lord, friends. If you'd like prayer, we will have someone um, out here who can pray with you separately. But find a friend, find Jack or myself if, if, that's, uh, if, if you have a different prayer request. But specifically for where we are today. Again, I couldn't shake this morning what, uh, what this moment is, what this space is here for. And so let's pray with an expectant openness to the movement of the Spirit. And then we'll uh, close in song. But let us pray. God, we come before you as people who desire to do good things. And we pray that as we desire, that your desires would fill our hearts, that you would fill us with your love and your compassion in ways that shake us, in ways that disrupt the orderliness of our lives, because you are what matters, God. And we thank you for the ways that you call this body together, the ways that you have made this body so competent and so full of goodness and of people who can share life with each other. And in your calling and in your drawing, would we push into each other more and more? And in so doing, embody what it means to live with a kind of ethic that makes us your people. Fill our hearts, God. We sang it this morning. Be near to us, and we pray this with Christ by the Spirit. Amen.